Great morning, everyone. Can you? Uh, yep, you can hear me. That's brilliant. I think Robert's just going to work a PowerPoint up for us. Um, yeah. So just as he starts to do that, we're um, we're looking in the second of this series of being beacons. So if you remember, Ian last week looked at us being beacons of hope, um, and today I'm going to look at us being beacons of love. Um, we've got a couple more to come before we finish, obviously, on Christmas Day, um, with actually being a beacon of Christ. So if you remember last week when Ian spoke to us, um, he said that Jesus said that we are the light of the world, that we are those beacons. Um, and what this series hopefully is going to do is just to emphasise what difference we can make as individuals, whether that's me or whether that's you. Um, but being a beacon of either faith or love or hope or joy um, has a real and a lasting kingdom impact. So I don't want to confuse us too much, but I do want to add a different image um, to the one that we've already got. Um, perhaps not surprisingly, on the packs that we had, where it's a Beacons Of series, um, we used the picture of a beacon, um, the sort of beacon that was at Sun Corner at the dawning of the millennium, anyone who was there all those years ago. But I just want to add this image. I want to add the image of a lighthouse, um, a similar sort of thing, a similar source of light doing a similar type of job. And the reason I want to do it will come hopefully apparent at the end, because I learned something about lighthouses, in my ignorance, um, that you may already know. So I thought, a lighthouse, you put it on, the light comes on, it flashes and revolves, everyone sees it, job done. Well, that's sort of true to a point, other than when you have a number of lighthouses that are clustered together. And what happens then is the flash pattern of each lighthouse is slightly different from the one nearby. So not only do you get to see it, you also happen to know exactly where you are when you do see it. So what I want to do is just keep that image in your mind a bit as we go through, and I want to come back to that um, as we get right to the end and we'll see where where we go. Now obviously love is a huge topic. Um, Bernard touched upon an issue of it earlier on already. Many, many things we could talk about. But this series really is about us um, shining our light into other people's lives. It's about us being beacons. So what I don't want to talk about today um, is our love for God and God's love for us. That's massively important, but that's not the topic of today. Um, But to provide a little bit of focus, what I'd like to do is just to look at some different people groups that we might be involved with and to understand how it is that we might interact with those people groups and what change we can make. Um, So in strictly fashion, um, in no particular order, um, the people groups we're going to look at are our friends, our neighbours, our family, that's our blood family and our relatives, ourselves, our enemies, and then finally our church family. Now I think right at the outset it's, it's fair to say that some of us are going to find some people in those groups easier to love than others. Um, This is not a straightforward topic at all. Um, And I think depending on our um, circumstances, depending on where we are in our lives, that's going to be apparent for each of us. Um, But let's work our way through and just see what the Bible has to say on these various different um, people groups. We're going to start with ourselves, um, and then we'll work out from there. Um, Oscar Wilde, always one for a great quote, isn't it? said, to love oneself is the beginning of a lifelong romance. Now, I think it's fair to say that many people and that includes Christians, struggle with that romance. Um, Some people are quite unhappy with their lot. They wish they were someone else. A number of people have low self-worth, low self-esteem. Some people will struggle 
to forgive themselves for mistakes that they may be made in the past. Some don't think they're deserving of love, and some might even think that if they love themselves, they're just being full of pride and being puffed up. Now, I don't think godly self-love is anything to do with about being puffed up, but it is being content with the unique person that God made me or you to be, and also someone that he sent his son to come and redeem. So as I look around this church today, I can see many people with loads of skills and talents that I don't have. Skills in music and arts, people with insight and intelligence, people gifted at getting alongside others. Now, I'd really love to do some of those things, and it would be good for me to to learn to do that and develop those skills. But what godly self-love would have me accept is my unique place in the body of Christ, even as I strive to become more like Jesus. Each of us has something we can do, can't we, in that body? Each of us is equally important as we grow as a church and as we grow as a people of God. Mark 12, 31, which we're going to come back to a little bit later on, talks about loving our neighbours. But it says we love our neighbours as we love ourselves. So there's a sort of a presumption that we actually do love ourselves. That's our starting point of that verse, if you like. Um, And the word that's used for love picks up things like to be fond of to welcome, to like, to treat affectionately and kindly. It's that sort of word that we're, that we're thinking of here. And I think for, for those of us, and I think I include myself in this sometimes, that do find it difficult to love ourselves, what is it that we can do? Well, firstly, I think we've got to learn to forgive ourselves. Matthew 6, Jesus calls on us to forgive others their sins. Is it too much to stretch that command to include me in that as well? If I fail to forgive myself, do I somehow belittle Jesus' sacrifice, putting myself into this category where I'm somehow beyond forgiveness? Psalm 103 tells us that God forgives and then he removes our sins from us. So should I learn to forgive myself? It might not be easy. We may have done things, we may have said things that we really deeply regret, but forgiveness is an essential step on that way to godly self-love. Secondly, maybe I need to learn to build myself up. Again, this is not something that is akin to the power of positive thinking. Um, It's extending what we are commanded to do to others to include ourselves as well. Ephesians 4.29 says, Only say what is helpful in building others up according to their needs. So without stroking my own ego, maybe it's time sometimes to build myself up and say things that are good for my own needs. And thirdly, let's be grateful for the person that God made me. Um, David, as we all know, a man from the Bible, certainly made more than his fair share of mistakes. But he wrote in Psalm 39, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Whatever we look like, whatever imperfections we might feel we have, we are made in the unique image of God. Now, surely that's got to be a good thing. Okay, where to next? Let's think of a people group that's probably the one that's easiest to love. Um, We tend to choose our friends because we like them. Um, The series, Friends, is 25 years old this year. I know there's some fans in here. Um, And featured a group of six slightly ageing, 20-somethings, living in New York. The concept was simple. The show was hugely popular. Now, partly because it was very well written and quite well acted but partly because it showed a situation that we can either all relate to or a situation that we quite like to be on. Um, but rest assured, friends did, uh, friendships actually did exist before we got to 1994. 
Now, I spoke recently about friendship at this church. I just want to pick up a couple of things very quickly. So you may, you may remember Job's friends. Um, they pop up quite early in Job's story. In Job 2.11, we read this. When Job's three friends, Aliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathise with him and comfort him. So those friends were not prepared to leave Job to suffer alone. Instead of going to the pub, or washing the car, or sending a sympathy card, or watching the football, they came together to support and comfort him. They were beacons of love to their friend. It may not have all gone swimmingly thereafter, but they were there by Job's side. Proverbs 18.24 says, One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Um, and again, if you remember, I just shared the story. Oh, gone one too many, sorry. Just said, shared the story of the guy called Tony. Uh, he was alone and lonely, but through the persistence of a friend, he's now part of a group called Romeo, these retired old men eating out. Okay, but there's a cost of friendship as well. Proverbs 17.17 tells us that a friend loves at all times. So that means sharing my friend's joy when their outcome or position or reward exceeds my own. Standing by them when they make poor life decisions and things perhaps start to go wrong. Sharing those important moments of life and the dull, boring, everyday ones. It's about going the extra mile. Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for one's friends, is what we read in John 15, 13. And it sends out that message, doesn't it, that our friendship, we need to put our friends in front of ourselves in friendship. Um, I guess like many men, I can only speak of, of men of my age, friendships actually weren't very easy to cultivate. When I was commuting, when I was working long hours, when I came home um, to family, to church commitments and responsibilities, it was difficult. But fortunately, in more recent years, we've been able to do that. And I'm really grateful to those friends that are beacons of love in my life. Um, I think they've made me a much better person. Uh, they introduced me to new ideas, to new experiences. They challenge me. They stretch the, my way of thinking. They support and they encourage me. All of those, I think, are a living testament of that Proverbs 27:17 verse, where it says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Okay, two down, four to go. Um, let's think about our neighbours. We said we we're going to go back to um, Mark 12, um, and we will do. So in the NIV Bible, this verse is headed up the greatest commandment. So here Jesus tells an expert in the law that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and to love your neighbour as yourself. So loving your neighbour is not just any old commandment. It is part of the greatest commandment. Um, now, as we move on into Luke's gospel, um, we get to hear a little bit more of the exchange that goes on between the man of the law and Jesus. Um, the man then asks Jesus, so who is my neighbour? Um, and Jesus responds with the parable of the Good Samaritan, where, and if you don't know the end of the answer, here is a spoiler alert, um, the Samaritan, who was an enemy of the traveller, turned out to be the good neighbour. But who are our neighbours? Um, I want to take a slight detour um, into a legal case. Um, 
It was heard in 1932, and it was between um, Donoghue and Stevenson, and it involved a bottle of ginger beer and a snail. Um, in 1928, Mrs. Donoghue purchased a drink um, and she drank a bottle of ginger ale in the cafe run by Mr. Stevenson. As the bottle was dark and opaque, Mrs. D did not see the remains of the decomposing snail in the bottle until she drank most of it. As a result of seeing these unwanted contents, Mrs. D then claimed that she suffered shock and severe gastroenteritis. Mr. S argued that he was just selling on what he'd bought in good faith and that he owed Mrs. D no duty of care whatsoever. Now, using the Good Samaritan as a basis for his ruling, Lord Atkin posed and then answered the question, who is my neighbour? His answer, and I paraphrase what he said, was, it is all persons who so closely and directly affected by my act that I ought reasonably to have thought they would have been affected. In essence, anyone that you thought might be impacted are the people who are your neighbours. Now, that might be your actual physical neighbour. Do you remember when Marlene spoke from London City Mission a couple of weeks ago? She said that God called on her to love her neighbour, her physical neighbour, and then she actually admitted that she didn't even know who they were. Um, it may be the people that we see every day in the street. Um, it may be the, the till assistant in the supermarket, that person you're squashed up against in the train when you're going to London. The other parents or grandparents or carers that you might see on the school run. It might be some of those people, maybe, that you only see on an occasional basis. So what can we learn from that story of the, of the Good Samaritan? What does it take? Um, loving our neighbour takes time. Um, am I prepared to interrupt my day? That's what I always think is the most amazing thing of that story, is the chap actually stopped, didn't he, the Samaritan, and broke into his day to see what was going on. Um, it requires us to be observant. Um, now, I guess seeing a beaten man on an empty road is relatively straightforward. But what about seeing the stressed mum or dad in the supermarket queue? It might be awkward. Um, the guy who was put on the donkey was actually naked at the time and had to be manhandled onto the donkey. It's not always comfortable, is it? It might be costly. The Samaritan paid for that man to look after. But whatever it is, it's always about being compassionate and it's always about being merciful. Um, a couple of weeks ago, Barbara was driving back from her work Christmas party and she saw what she thought was a drunk man tottering near the side of a dual carriageway. Um, having been concerned about the man, but having already gone past him, she went on to the next roundabout, turned round and came back. Parking the car, she got out and approached the man, stopping him from wandering into the road until other drivers stopped and then the police were then called. Now, I know that you don't all have the towering physical presence of Barbara. <laughs> and depending on the circumstances that you're in, um, it might not be appropriate to stop and intervene. But actually, if you go through that list, Barbara showed a lot of those traits of the Good Samaritan um, on that night. Um, in the end, the police knew who the chap was and everything was fine. Um, but um, an interesting story, which I'm glad I heard about afterwards, not at the time. Okay, we're going to turn to our family. Uh, we'll think about our church family a little bit, a little bit later on. Um, I don't know about you, but families can be really interesting places, can't they? Um, you only need to turn up at a wedding to see family dynamics in all their glory, sometimes for good, sometimes for not quite so good. 
Now, I've got to say, we're quite fortunate. Our family dynamics are pretty good, both our close family and our more distant family. Um, to my knowledge, we haven't had any great serious fallouts or disputes or whatever else. But I do count myself fortunate. I do know that there are a huge number of families that struggle um, where that is not the case. And your own situation may actually be very difficult. But we are still called upon to be beacons of love to our family, regardless of what that situation looks like. Let's start maybe with our closest family relationships. Um, Colossians 3.21, it says, Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Ephesians 6.4 picks on fathers again. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And then as we flip over, Ephesians 6, 1 and 2 speaks to children, says, Honour your father and your mother so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. That relationship between parent and child is a really complex one, isn't it? And it changes over time. It changes as children begin to grow older. It changes as parents begin to grow older. And Philip Larkin once famously said, they mess you up, your mum and dad. Um, There are other more profane versions of that quote available too. (coughs) Whilst not agreeing with Philip, there is no doubt that the relationship can be stressful. And whilst those verses don't actually speak of love, it's love that actually underpins them. And we know that parent-child relationship does not stop with age. Those foundations continue on through the whole of life. My children now are all grown up, but rest assured, I can still provoke them to anger. (laughs) My father is approaching 90, and I still need to honour him. There are testing times, there are difficult times, but we do need to be beacons of love to our close family. Always seems to pick on the men, doesn't it? Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Those relationships between husbands and wife that can start really so loving can become strained when the pressures of life exert their influence. Again, so husbands are reminded here um, that we need to love our lives, and I'm sure those same sentiments uh, apply to to the women as well. But it's not just our really close family. Um, This extends to our our wider family as well. 1 Timothy 5.8 says... But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now often when we read that verse, it's really in the context of financial provision. That's often how we read it. But I think it can be applied much more widely, and I think it equally relates to the provision of love and support and encouragement. So I want to urge you, as you sit here today, as children, as parents as brothers and sisters, as aunts, as uncles, as grandparents, to take on that responsibility of being a beacon of love to your family. Be those that encourage, be those that support, be those that uplift, and be those that are positive. And remember, in Proverbs eleven twenty nine to 31, it says, those who bring trouble on their families inherit the wind. Okay, our next group is enemies. Um... Enemies can be really emotive word, can't it? And I think maybe we think, oh, I haven't really got any enemies. Um, So what I'd like to do is I'd like to split this up into two groups, if you like. Um, The first group is maybe the more obvious. This is the group that are wholeheartedly set against us. You sort of imagine a a combat, a war-type situation where someone's really against you and you are really against them. Um, And to such people, we are called to be beacons of love. Matthew uh, 5.44, sorry, Jesus says... 
But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, whilst there are millions of Christians across the world that are being persecuted, by and large, that situation doesn't really apply to us. But the passage in Matthew moves on and hints at a different type of enemy that we also need to love. So I say again, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil, and sorry, he, he, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So maybe those unrighteous are people that are not out to cause you harm, but actually they just aggravate you a bit. They hold contrary views, they hold antagonistic views. It could be that person who always criticises those things that you do. It could be the person who leaves you out every time when they're arranging some sort of event. We've already spoken a bit about the election. It might be someone who voted the other way to you in Brexit or was going to vote the other way in the election. It might be someone who uses social media to undermine you or say negative things. It may just be someone who doesn't particularly show you any sort of love at all. Now suddenly that call from Jesus to love our enemies becomes a bit more real. It becomes a bit more applicable to our lives. It's not pleasant to be on the wrong end of criticism. It's not pleasant to be undermined. But again, we need to be beacons of love um, and we need to act and we love these people. So what is it that we need to do? How do we treat them? Um, Verse 47 of that passage calls on us to greet them. We're told that if we greet only our own people, our friends if you like, How are we different from anybody else? So loving my enemy could be as simple as that. It could be as simple as greeting them. There may be other steps that we need to take along the road, but that's a really good start. In verse 45, it says, meet their physical needs. In this case, love is a practical effort to meet the person's, the enemy's physical need. It says sunshine and rain are the two things that are needed to grow food. And they're exactly the thing that God says he pours out on both the righteous and the unrighteous. So loving your enemy might mean practical acts in the ordinary things of life. Um, Exodus 23.5 says this, If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. Poor donkey. We would not see that sort of situation, would we? But we might come across this. Or we might come across this. The point here is not the donkey that's the issue. It's the fact that you're prepared to work with your enemy to achieve something that will actually benefit them. What else are we asked to do? We are asked to pray for them. I think prayer for your enemies is one of the deepest forms of love that actually we could show. Because it really means that you want something good to happen for them. Prayer that is in the presence of God who knows our heart, who knows what it is that we're praying, and interceding on their behalf is something that is for their good. So the point seems to be, don't stop loving one one because a person does things that either offend you, or hurt your feeling, or angers you, or disappoints you, or frustrates you, or threatens you. And then what if anything goes wrong for them? As tempting as it may be, you can't rejoice. Proverbs 24, 17 says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. And finally, we're going to reach our last group, which is us, one another. 1 John 4, 7. 
um, says, let us love one another for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. John 13, 34, 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one from another. Churches should be places of love. Not because it's just a good thing to do, but also because of the witness it provides to other people that look on. What is worse than to see infighting and squabbling in churches and amongst fellow Christians? Sadly, and all too often, church history is littered with Christians not loving each other and not being prepared to work together. That simply should not be the case. Furthermore, we've just finished a series looking at the gifts of the Spirit, haven't we? Those gifts given by God freely to help us function as the body of Christ. One of the passages that we use was in 1 Corinthians 12. But that passage is then put into context by the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13, where it says this. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. So all of those wonderful gifts that we read about in 1 Corinthians 12 that God has imparted on us are worthless if they don't come with love. In essence, without love, we're really weakened as Christians almost to the point where we become impotent. Now, as we know, churches can be strange places. Um, people who you may have very little in common with and maybe would never meet in another instance come together and are thrown together because of our shared love for Jesus. There might be people who don't quite share the same detailed theology as you. Um, there may be people who want to sing different songs to you. There may be people who want to see the church develop in a different direction to you. And Ephesians 4.23, it tells us this, Be always humble, gentle and patient. Show your love by being tolerant with one another. Do your best to preserve the unity which the Spirit gives by means of the peace that binds you together. All churches, our church, should be a place of love. So what can we say? In conclusion, love is powerful. Um, you only need to consider the popular culture, literature, films, songs, etc., where love becomes a central theme. Um, for those who are old enough, the Beatles sang that all you need is love. Um, Frankie Goes to Hollywood reminded us to make love our goal. And Ariana Grande reminds us that love is everything. As Christians, being beacons of love is powerful in helping to build God's kingdom. Now, remember our lighthouse. If you remember, what we said is those lighthouses that are close together have a distinctive flash pattern. They're different from those that are next door. And I think being beacons of love mean that we have a distinctive flash pattern in the way that we um, emit our love into those different people groups. And that will depend upon our circumstances at a particular time. There'll be times when our, sh when our light shines more intently on our friends. Times when our family maybe needs more support. Times when we need to think about our enemies 
our flash pattern is unique to us. It will be different from the person next to you and it will constantly change with time. So let's leave the last words with Jesus from Matthew 7, verse 12, where he says, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way that you want them to treat you. And I think that includes the way that we love them. So let's strive this Advent season to be those beacons of love. Shall we just pray? Father God, I just thank you that you sent Jesus who was the light of the world. And I thank you that he reminded us that we too are the light of the world. And Father, I would pray for each of us this morning that we would be able to take on board what it is to be a beacon of love. What it is, Father, to emit love to, um, to the various people groups that we meet, Father. I pray for those of us who maybe struggle, um, who have difficult situations in family or, or other situations where it's not easy to love, Father. And I just pray that you would give strength, that you would give wisdom, um, that you would enable us to be those beacons of love. And Father, as we go towards Christmas, may we be those that emit love. May we be those that shine brightly for you. May we be those that see people brought into your kingdom because of the way that we live, the things that we say, and the way that we react. Lord, we thank you that you are indeed love. We thank you for those verses that Bernard spoke right at the beginning. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. Father, we could not do many of these things without your strength. And Father, we just pray that you will continue to dwell within us, that you will give us that strength, you will give us more insight into your love for us, that we may reflect that into the world in which we live. And give us the words to say, Lord, the attitudes to portray, the things to do, as we move from this place today and we live our place in the world in this coming week. So Father, be with each one of us, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.